You're listening to Girovagando, the cycling podcast at the 2021 Giro d'Italia, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Today, we are in Guardia San Framondi. Where are we, uh, Daniele Fribrancini Frappuccino? Well, Richard, you're not going to believe this. You got something wrong. No. We're back in Molise. No. Yes. I thought it was supposed to be small and also not exist. Well, it doesn't exist. As well, Let's have a little reminder that it doesn't exist. Uh, a little, another burst after last night's of the song. Molise non esiste. Sarebbe bello avere la fortuna di vedere la bandiera americana piantata sulla luna. So we discussed that last night, Rich, didn't we? Although on reflection, I still don't think I really um, explained why this, how this myth has arisen. However, just on the, the, the basic geography of today and our journey today, we started in Puglia. We then went into Molise again. Then we finished in Campania. And now we're back in Molise. And then tomorrow morning we'll be in Abruzzo. We will be in Abruzzo, we'll be in Castel di Sangro. Yes. Won't we? Um, yeah, well, it's been very changing landscapes down here. Uh, it felt like we were really in the mountains uh, a couple of days ago, and then really the, the plains today as we, as we left Foggia. Um, and there's some pretty huge mountains looming over us now. Um, yeah, we'll describe we're where we are n- right now. We're in a, a small town. Called Boiano. We're definitely in the south of Italy aren't we? Yes, we are. It's, it's a very different vibe down here. Um, you know, a, a town of this size in the north would be very, very different, wouldn't it? Um, you know, the, the, the difference in the, the, the quality of the roads is very striking. Um, there's, there, well, there's a lot of potholes and they're pretty rough in places. The buildings too. Um, there's just, it's just there's a, a very, very different place. There's a chaos, there's an energy to life which you don't get in the north. Uh, yeah, the say, north Rich? is quite polished and, and, and glossy by comparison, isn't it? There's an intensity to life in the south, which some people absolutely love. And, um, you know, in the same way that we might sometimes sound sniffy about certain places in the south, some people are, are like that about the north because, you know, they find it a little bit sterile and lifeless in comparison to places like this. Indeed. Um, well, we are, uh, yeah, as you say, Daniel, heading properly into the mountains tomorrow. Tomorrow is a stage I'm really looking forward to, actually. Uh, the, it, it's, uh, you know, um, it's not an alpine stage or a dolomite stage, but it's a very, very difficult looking stage on paper. Apennine stage. It's an apennine stage, and it should, it should give us a real sort out, which we didn't have today. Um, today was a... A funny stage, really. It got underway in Foggia, and uh, it was 173 kilometres to Guardia San Framonde. First time the Giro has finished there, with a little climb, not a significant, real, really climb, but it didn't it didn't really uh, do anything among the GC riders. But as expected, it was contested by a breakaway. However, in the early parts of the stage, it looked like we might have a real humdinger in our hands because there were crosswinds, as you've said, Daniel, unusually in Italy. 
unusually in Italy, and as you know, I'm not um, Crosswind's biggest Well, did they make fan. you sad? Well, they would have made me sad if the situation that seemed to be unfolding had unfolded and Attila Walter what would have been the ultimate sadness would it have been Attila yeah I think it would also because there would have been such, echoes there would have been echoes then the ultimate sort of tragic figure in the whole you know the, the general crosswind narrative in cycling is um, Thibaut Pino, isn't he yeah and one thing I didn't mention yesterday and you know we made the point that Gino Maida and Attila Walter's opportunities had come about in this Giro because their respective captains had either not participated in Pino's case or crashed in Lander's case. Um, and another little aside to that, who is Attila Walter's coach? Who is his coach? It is a Pino, Julien ah, Pino. Is it really? It is. As of this year? As of this I year, Groupama. Yeah. 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 Julien, who is here... Um, Canoli is his. Well, I was going to ask if he'd been eating much cannoli. Yeah, because um, I think loyal or long-term listeners will know this. We we saw him gorging on some cannoli in Sicily a couple of years ago. Now, Julian and I have this little um, sort of custom we've developed. Whenever he sees cannoli, he sends me a picture. Whenever I send, uh, I see cannoli, I send him a picture. But cannoli, of course, are a Sicilian sweet. And we haven't been to Sicily Can yet. Can we get him on the podcast talking about Attila at some point? Let's that would that. be good. Um, as I say, we were racing across these big open plains and it was fertile uh, territory for crosswinds. And there was a, a light wind blowing and it did uh, cause some splits to open up. Attila Valter, the pink jersey, was distanced at one point. A mistake, he said at the press conference afterwards, he made a mistake. He looked around and saw Roman Bardet and Vincenzo Nibali and assumed that he was okay, that he was in the right position. But, um, well, that was a mistake, as he said. It came back together. Um, and at one point, Remco Evenepoel was also uh, caught out in the little split, but he was brought back up by his team. Ineos Grenadiers were the main aggressors, it seemed, uh, and... At various points, uh, Filippo Ghana went to the front and, and went pretty hard in the gutter to try and make it hard. But there was still a long, long way to go. There's been, well, there continues to be hand-wringing in Italy among a certain type of Italian, kind of, um, I would almost say, jaded, crusty Italian pundits. Um, there's been hand-wringing about the way Ghana's been deployed. By I mean, that Ineos. is, I find that um, incredible. Mario Cipollini did a, an Instagram video yesterday in which he, you know, he decried the way that Ghana was being used that he shouldn't be pulling on the front I mean I don't know what Cipollini thinks that he should be saving himself for he did make the point that the sprinters trains here the sprinters teams aren't necessarily that well equipped so there might be opportunities and I suppose yesterday would have been an opportunity it was an atypical bunch sprint with a climb 1.5k to go or a steep ramp anyway so there was potential there for disorganization and for a sort of finisher someone who can produce a lot of watts over a relatively long period of time i.e Ghana to try something and there might be more opportunities like that in the in the Giro but you know the, the team is trying to win the race and Ghana is a is a he's a weapon of mass destruction they have to use him as such absolutely I mean they do realize it's a team sport and I mean I, I can understand the, the, the hand wringing over the sight of Ghana um, working on the front in the pink maybe jersey. Maybe it's hand wringing maybe it's pearl clutching. Well, what do they, <laughs> they, they do a lot of things with their hands in Italy. Yeah. Um, do they wring them or but he yeah I can understand it when he was on um, effectively sacrificing himself while in the pink jersey but at the same time um, 
if you're here to win the Giro overall in Milan and not keep the pink jersey for another day, then that, that's what you do. That's how it works. Anyway, Ferrari, Ghana, you get the sense. Ferrari is no good to anyone, you know, when you yeah, keep it in the garage. Yeah, but Ghana, Ghana is, there's a lot resting on him. You can sense that in Italy, um, there, there's a lot of expectation being invested in him. He, they, want, they want him to be pampered and to be the, the star of the team, not just a, a worker. People nazionale, national, you know, people d'Italia. Absolutely. After these uh, skirmishes and a bit of excitement and thinking that we might be in for a, a kind of a day a bit like the Vuelta a couple of years ago um, when we had, what, where were we racing to that day? Guadalajara. Guadalajara. Who could forget? Um, it didn't quite work out. The, the, the race regrouped, um, but a casualty was Caleb Ewan, who pulled out with apparently knee pain. We thought he'd crashed because there was a crash in a tunnel, but he didn't crash. He was in the Ciclamino jersey for the first day, wasn't it? It was the first day after winning yesterday. Um, and uh, quite a big thing for him to pull out. Now, Kira McVitie, friend of the podcast, former audio diarist, told me at the finish that she'd heard that he was wearing new shoes to match his new jersey and the shoe plates hadn't been put on right. And that was uh, an explanation for his knee pain. Um, I told her I'd land her in it by accrediting her as a source of that. Daniel, you heard a slightly different explanation. Yeah, so less scurrilous, but also coming from possibly a more compromised source, the team. Um, I heard they had an accident in the hotel. You know, they, I don't an know accident they, in the hotel? Well, I don't know whether the accident involved shoe plates and Chiclamina shoes. It might well have done. But um, a silly, a banal kind of accident that subsequently affected him in the race. But, you know, there was a, a sort of end of days or end of Giro feel about his press conference yesterday, wasn't there? Um, a little bit. Although, although, you know, for would-be conspiracy theorists, it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense for him to pull out now um, because in a couple of days there should be another sprint finish on the day when the Giro goes to um, Umbria and Foligno. That was another opportunity. So if, if he was going to make an early exit and head to the airport down the A1 motorway to Rome, probably, in that case, <laughs> um, it would have been there, yeah. not today. But there are other, other airports are available. Um, anyway... Um, the break did eventually go, uh, and there were initially seven riders in it. Nelson Oliveira of Movistar, Koba Hulsens. Koba Hulsens, yeah. Um, well, we've struggled a bit with the old Belgian pronunciation. Let's go. Should we Should we consult a real authority? Yeah, Hugo Korovitz of Het Newsblad. Hey, Daniel. Um, no, uh, we say also Koba The pronunciation is Koba Hulsens. And Kobe is a Flemish name also. Uh, it was common um, the generation of two before and now it's uh, a name you hear the, sometimes also, Kobe Horsens. Well, thanks for that, Hugo. Um, not named after Kobe Bryant, well, as we, we wondered. Well, should, we just, should we just verify that with Hugo as well? Hi, Daniel. I asked to uh, Kobe Horsens uh, now. Uh, why he has uh, this poor name, this uh, first name, and he said, no, nothing to do with Kobe Bryant. Uh, I'm Kobe, and you know Kobe in Belgium, it's from Jakob, uh, so uh, Kobe Hosens. Uh, also disappointed uh, because he thought he had better legs um, than he had at the finish. You go. 
That's, that's a shame, isn't it? We could have had the second LA Lakers reference in two days after establishing yesterday that we had um, a lot in common with LeBron James. Um, today, it could have been a Kobe Bryant. The late, you know, sadly missed Kobe Bryant. Also in the break were Alexi Gujar, uh, Nikias Arndt, Victor Lafay, Giovanni Carboni, Francesco Gavazzi and Fernando Gaviria, surprisingly. But no rider from which team? Do, do, do. Androni Giocattoli. <gasps> and also no rider from uh, Asos Quebeca initially. But Victor Campenarts bridged across very impressively, it has to be said. It took him 11 minutes, apparently. Um, but he got across to that breakaway. And they built quite a big lead, seven minutes at one point, and uh, stayed away to contest the finish. There were a lot of attacks, so Gaviria went very early and then crashed on the descent and hurt himself uh, a little bit, but got back on, uh, got some attention from the doctor, got back into the group, but was really struggling after that. A real shame for him. Uh, on the approach to the final climb up to the finish, Carboni and Campanarts got away. Um, they looked pretty good. Gujar was chasing for a while, and I think he was our favourite to win the stage, wasn't he, Daniel? Um, but uh, they... Uh, Behind, surprisingly, perhaps, the group chased pretty pretty well. They worked pretty well together. And it came back, and Lafay uh, attacked behind. Uh, gap wasn't too big. He caught Carboni, who by now had dropped Campanarts, and uh, went straight past him with about two kilometres to go to win the stage. Just on Gujar, I think ag 2 I were quite confident because I saw their press officer at the finish, and I noticed that he was wearing a GoPro on his chest. And uh. I inquired about that, and he said... Well, I thought that Alexi had a good chance and, you know, they were going to prepare some fantastic video extravaganza uh, using the GoPro, but it didn't quite come to pass, did it? Well, that's a shame. Um, so in the end, Victor Lafay was the winner, uh, only a third Giro stage win by a Cofidis rider and the first since 2010. Uh, Gavazzi was second, Arndt, very, he's always very consistent, Nicky's Arndt, if he gets himself in these breaks, he's very good at finishing them off. He was third on the day. General classification, still Walter in the lead with Evenepoel at 11 seconds and Bernal at 16. Um, the Ciclamino jersey passes on to Tim Merlier, or passes back to Tim Merlier after Caleb Ewan's um, retirement. And the blue jersey for King of the Mountains remains on the shoulders of our diarist, who we will hear from again at some point, Gino Mader. Well, it was a good day for the French teams, wasn't it? Um, pity it's another six days or so until Francois Thomaso joins us out here at the Giro but Groupama FDG held on to the pink jersey and Cofidis won the stage with a name that is quite new to me certainly um, but Victor Lafay is 25 years old he's from Lyon uh, Daniel you said that he was originally part of the AG2R setup or rumoured to be joining that setup but he rides for Cofidis instead and he's ridden well this season especially when you consider that he suffered a nasty crash and concussion at the Ardèche Classic in late February. That meant some time out of racing. But last month at the Volta a la Comunitat Valenciana in the south of Spain, he was second to Enric Mas in pretty good company at Alto de la Reina. He was also the winner uh, a few years back at the Etape de Tour, um, the big sportive event. He was the fastest man in 2018. That was just after he'd finished second to Mark Hershey at the European Under-23 road race and just a few days before he turned pro with Cofidis on the 1st of August that year. But a new name maybe, but definitely a talent and uh, took his win very well today and one to watch.
Still gassing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink? On rights that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights, and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Thanks very much indeed to our title sponsor, Super Sapiens. Super Sapiens is all about helping with your glucose monitoring and helping athletes, that's all of us, improve our fueling to help us train more effectively. We're all athletes, Daniel. Over time, the user learns how best to manage their energy resources. It takes the guesswork out of when and what to eat. How it works is that the Abbott Libra Sense Glucose Sport Biosensor sticks to the back of the upper arm. A thin filament is inserted just under the skin to accurately measure glucose levels. That then sends real-time glucose data to the Super Sapiens app, and each biosensor patch lasts 14 days. Teams using it here are Yumba Visma and Team Ineos Grenadiers. Canyon Sram, the Women's World Tour team, also use it. A lot of other individual riders are also using Super Sapiens. And we are running a competition for our listeners to win three months free supply of the Biosensor patches. All you have to do is send an audio or video message and go to thecyclingpodcast.com to see exactly how to enter. Let's hear from another entrant to this fantastic competition we want you to tell us how and why you will use super sapiens to help you achieve your cycling ambition here is michael stanley on june the 20th uh, i'm going to cycle 410 kilometers from the Wirral uh, near liverpool back down to london i'm doing this uh to raise money for a charity called maggie's um Maggie's have helped my mum at a time when COVID meant I couldn't. Um, She was diagnosed with lymphoma last June and with travel restrictions uh, in place, visiting her and supporting her has been uh, a challenge, a challenge that Maggie's have really stepped up to and ever since the diagnosis have been been helping her and guiding her uh, through her fight against cancer. I've uh, never ridden a bike for 18 or 20 hours, um, but I've spoke to a few people that have done something similar and they've always told me that fueling and nutrition is key. And so I think Super Sapiens could really help me stay on top of that and give me the best chance possible uh, of completing this challenge successfully and pay Maggie's back uh, in some small way for what they've done for my mum. Well, best of luck with that, Michael, and please do keep the entries coming in for this competition. Um, Also, you can have a look at Super Sapiens' website, supersapiens.com, if you want to know more about how it works. And we're going to get ours soon, I believe, Daniel, so we'll be reporting on what we're learning as well, wearing our Super Sapiens. Bueno, sí, digamos que llegamos a mi segunda casa. Yes, I'm going to my second home today. How did I come to live there? Well, I got contacted by an Italian under-23 team, Veus TMF, came over to join them, and having started out as my cycling team, they became a kind of family for me. They supported me, they helped me every day, so I'll give everything for them today. 
Obviously, it's not a very well-known region for cycling. There's only one under-23 team, but everyone knows me and they're all mighty foesy, as they say here. I'm very proud of that and I'm going to try to make the most of it today. When I'm training, it's true, there are a lot of pretty rough roads around there, although obviously the ones on the route today are just fine, and there'll be absolutely no problem for the race in that regard. Well, Rich, that was the local boy, the home hero on today's stage, the Colombian, Ainer Rubio of Movistar. Yeah, what's going on there? Well, I think as Ainer sort of explained there, um, he... In one of the sort of strangest kind of adoptions ever in professional cycling, he's been ad- adopted by this region in the south of Italy, which has never really had any kind of cycling heritage, um, hasn't produced many riders at all, isn't a particularly great place or renowned place to train, uh, the Benevento um, province. He actually lives in a place called Pago Veano. And um, yeah, that was where this team that recruited him a few years ago, um, Veus TMF it's called, that's where they're based and, and I think he, he met a girl there and has been very much adopted by, as I say, the local community and he's, to all intents and purposes, uh, a, a Campania local hero now, which um, is, is, is very odd. Wow. Can you remember that last year at the Giro, Einer Rubio had some beef with Thomas de Hent. He did. It was a stage that Filippo Ganna won, actually, uh, in the in the rain and the cold. Um, he was away with de Gent, wasn't he? But he refused to work with him, and de Gent got the hump. And actually, kind of, when Ganna bridged up to him and got away, de Gent preferred him to win than to help or to do anything that might help Rubio win. So, yeah, there was a lot of beef, wasn't there? Yeah, and he's a promising rider. He was second in the Baby Giro a couple of years ago. And um, he, prior to that, so before he came to Europe, he was part of the Esteban Chavez. You know, Chavez has got a sort of academy, a foundation um, in Colombia and is from, I think, the same area of Colombia as Chavez. And he was part of that system. And, um, yeah, has come over and he's a quite a punchy little climber, but very, very promising. I, I found myself... Looks a bit like Nairo Man. He does look a bit like Nairo Man. Rubio Man. We could have Rubio Man <laughs> on, our, on our hands. Um, but I found myself, when I was speaking to him in late in the day, sort of trying to picture... Because this is not an area of Italy I know particularly well. And we talked about the, the, the sort of intersection of all these regions in the south. And you never quite know whether in whether you're in Basilicata, Campania, Puglia, Molise. And um, didn't really have a clear mental picture of where we were going today and what it was going to look like. I did think back, my memory was jogged. Um, remember last year where we talked a lot about Dino Buzzati's classic account of the 1949 Giro. And I did remember that there was a, what seemed at the time like it could be a decisive moment in that Giro that took place on the same sort of terrain in the same area um, as we were today. And it was stage five of that Giro. It was a stage from Salerno to Naples. And Gino Bartali had a, some sort of mechanical problem. Um, and it, that Giro, you know, before it started, had been billed as and turned out to be this great reckoning between the, the two huge rivals of the day, Fausto Coppi and, and a sort of ageing, possibly fading Gino Bartali. Anyway, Bartali had this mechanical problem and Buzzati um, wrote about, explained, um, narrated the, the, the huge anxiety that this p- provoked on the course that day because I think particularly in the South, Bartali had a bigger following than Coppi. And huge, huge crowds. And when they didn't see Bartali arriving with Coppi, um, there was 
this commotion, this almost hysteria. And then this is what Buzzati wrote about that precise moment. The countryside around us is stupendous, a perfect image of serenity and summer heat. And yet perhaps here a tragedy is also coming to pass. Could it possibly be that between such happy fields the Giro is being decided and that a heart is being shattered? Bartoli, old lion, is this the day that sooner or later had to arrive? Is this your supreme hour after which the final collapse of youth begins? Can the spell have been broken right here on a miserable hill that is only 585 metres high? Does the faithful genius that had chaperoned you until this day, dragging you to glory, no longer answer to your call? Have you become a rider like all the others? Do you think Buzzati would have made a better job of the tail of the tapper? <laughs> well, possibly not, because actually what ensued there was Bartoli just got back on and carried oh, on the stage oh, yeah. and finished Too in the much. same time as Copy. Copy did win the stage, but there was it was sort of prophetic in the sense that Copy did win that Giro and it was the sort of last act in their rivalry because Bartoli never vanquished him again, never vanquished Copy again. The fact that we're talking about the 1949 Giro um, tells me that today wasn't a hugely significant stage. Um, I forgot to mention that at one point uh, today Bernal was in one of the front groups and got short shrift from some of the other riders in that group who fancied that it might stay clear. It was a big group, but it was odd to see Bernal going to the front and, and, and taking a turn. It was a very strange move from him. We are expecting to speak to him tomorrow morning, so maybe maybe ask him about that. Um, but I did speak to a couple of riders who had a, a part to play in today's stage at the finish um, because uh, DSM, um, you know, a team that always has a plan, they clearly had a plan today. They had a few goes to get riders and breaks and the end it was Nikias Arndt so let's hear what he had to say uh, about what happened today and let's then hear from his teammate Nicholas Roach yeah I mean it was really tough jumping in the beginning also that uphill part there and we had in a few breaks Nico Roach and we had in a few breaks um, Michael Stora in yeah at the end at the end I just followed a move and then I saw oh shit that is really one which is going and um, we also said that I came in, so it was not a mistake, but I was doubting a little bit if I can finish it off. And of course, if I go in a breakaway, I'm looking to the win. But I know that this would be a tricky one, so I'm happy with the third place today. That looked like a, a, a really crazy start to the stage today. Was that just the, the conditions? It was a little bit of wind. Yeah, a couple of things. I think the condition is a wind. Also, today was a real chance for the breakaway to make it. I think a lot of teams were had that in the back of the mind and uh, you know everyone just uh, wanted to kind of give it a go. We were saying that it's quite unusual in the Giro to have uh, crosswinds. Yeah it's true, uh, it's not so, you'd also you'd think more of the Tour or or some of the Vuelta stages, uh, it doesn't happen quite often. It, it, it was a bit of a surprise, we, we knew the wind was a factor today, I think everyone was, was quite ready but I didn't think it would uh, split the bunch. And a few of you from your team trying to get in the break today, Michael Storer, Nikias Arndt, ended up in it. I think you were trying at 1.2. Yeah, I was quite active today. I, Like I said, I also thought today was the perfect day for for the breakaway. You know, you kind of have to choose your days. Uh, tomorrow is most likely to be too hard for me. Today was a better day for if I had to go in the breakaway. There's no point going in the breakaway and... And you know, and losing a day, you have to really kind of choose your days. And and sometimes when you choose your day, is not 
decided for you. <laughs> but uh, but no, I, I was quite active. Stora was active. Nikias uh, had the good feeling. He went when uh, when they caught me, and that was the right move. Well, that was Nikias Arndt and Nicholas Roach talking about today. I think they were pretty happy with third on the stage. Um, got Bardet on GC, of course, as well. And uh, Daniel, you spoke to one of the one of the GC men at the finish. Spoke to would maybe be slightly <laughs> overegging it. Um, does one ever really speak to or have a conversation with Hugh Carthy? Um, I mean, really, he's, he's really, very entertaining. He is quite entertaining. Um, if you like listening to, seeing journalists being humiliated. Um, but no malice intended from Hugh. This is, you know, we're used to his style now. I grabbed a very quick... Um, he just always seems surprised to be being asked these questions. Yeah, I grabbed a very um, quick and some would argue not very insightful word <laughs> with him. Let's after, hear it. After the finish. <laughs> How are the legs there, here at the end? Well, it's okay. Uh, not much of a GC battle. Is that more or less what you're expecting? Yeah, more or less. I think we're fighting for the win. It would be different, but in the end it was okay. It was a bit, a bit tense coming into the climb, but... With the uphill, with the headwind, it was okay. More of the same tomorrow, do you think? Or a bit more of a sort out tomorrow? Yeah, I think it's a proper, proper GC day tomorrow. Maybe a break. But, uh, I think behind in the GC group, it'll be, uh, it'll be a fight. Well, that was Hugh Carthy, uh, Daniel. Um, Remco Evnepol this morning did say that he was starting to feel quite tired. I don't know. Um, yesterday, he was saying he was feeling stronger every day. So that's a remarkable turnaround in... 24 hours, um, but I don't think we know. And I think, you know, it, there was a very interesting response from the, the pink jersey, Attila Walter, at the the finish. He was asked who impressed him most of the other GC riders. Um, and he's, he, he said he, well, he didn't really answer the question. He said he was focused on his own race, but he said, he said you know, Remco hasn't ridden a Grand Tour before and hasn't raced for nine months. And Bernal, with Bernal, there's the question of his back injury. I can only focus on myself, he said, and right now I'm in pole position. So, fighting top. Can he then thump his chest? Yeah, I mean, he he, he doesn't look um, invulnerable. Um, he ha has spoken about the problems he has with positioning and, and really holding his place in the, in the front of the bunch. And he's learning how to do that better this week, looked after by his Group Am FTG teammates. Um but, you know, he was caught out today early in the stage. I don't think it comes all that naturally to him. And there was maybe a little sign of, of a weakness on the climb up to the finish. Although he stayed with the leaders fairly comfortably, the, the GC leaders, that is. But tomorrow's going to be a huge test for him. He was, yeah, he was towards the back of that group, wasn't he? Do you know who lost more time today? Shed a few more seconds. Uh, Jai Rule, Jai Hindley. And um, we, we talked about DSM. And I think that the... the verdict there is a pretty definitive one as far as his general classification hopes are concerned he's just not quite there is he um at the moment but beyond he's that, more of an october giro man yes but um beyond that there were no real conclusions that we could draw from the gc group were there no it was all very cagey I mean, Peo bilbao lost time because of a crash a very an unusual crash he did he lost a bit of time Joao Almeida led them across the line, and he had that one bad day, didn't he? But he has looked better and sharper, and if he is, you know, he could be a really useful teammate for Evnepol. I mean, you know, Bernal's lost Sivakov, still got pretty strong team, but you'd say, you know, man to man, De Kooning Quickstep have probably a better team in the mountains with 
our diarist James Knox, of course, Fausto Masnada, and if Almeida is is back on song, he could be a really useful rider for him. Well, now let's hear from our audio diarist James Knox of the Conan Quickstep. Another day, a little bit lazy with the podcast. Yeah, not so sharp anymore. Um, got to the hotel and then we had rapid antigen tests. I also had the uh, anti-doping control with a blood test. So yeah, I uh, still haven't had dinner. It's 9 p.m. But we're scuttling down after this. Hectic day today. Well, the start especially. Yeah, we had a lot of wind out of Hodja. Um, already, yeah, guys jumping in the breakaway. Banaus was going across with some guys. It was like, yeah, 25-man group up the road. Everyone else in the gutter. Carnage, really. Then we came to this first town. Um, everyone fighting through the town to be in position again for the crosswinds coming out of the town. Nibbly crashed there, I think. And then, yeah, it was some really difficult moments. Um, I really struggled, to be honest. Couldn't really stay in front. Didn't really have the gas for it, but uh, snivelled around, uh, hiding in a few wheels, um, just to sort of stay around the boys and try and move Remco up a couple of times. But I mean, the only thing I would say is that no team really got organised. Um, there was lots of groups of twos and threes putting it in the gutter, but um, the difference of yeah having you know ten guys band across the road really going all in um, makes a big difference. But yeah, it was just sort of a lot of gutter action. To be honest, a lot of suffering in the gutter, no one really pushing out. And then yeah, and then we we finished that, and then we got to this horrible straight main road climb, sort of like a you know what is it like a Eight percent straight up, bit of a tunnel at the top, and there was a bit of a dangerous moment there. I had to make a bit of an effort to close a group that had a FDJ guy and an Ineos guy going up the road. Didn't really uh, want to see them go in, and yeah, that would put the responsibility on us. So yeah, managed to get across there, and then I was pretty cooked to be honest. That was only like a, an hour and a half of racing, but I was yeah, that was a pretty hard start. Um, after that, it sort of settled down. Well, when the break went, um, and from there. Just sort of got on with it. Yeah, uh, it was a long climb. All of us stayed with Remco, kept in position for the downhill. Did the downhill pretty fast, to be honest. Always feel a little bit nervous on these. Actually, Italian roads in general always feel a bit nervous, I'm going to be honest. You know, you never know what's coming. Tight, twisty corners. Never know about road surfaces, so always on extra alert. But yeah, we went down pretty fast. And then, yeah, it was a big fight into the, the last climb. Did a bit of a job and then peeled off. Um, yeah, didn't really make much of a difference, but was there in the train trying to keep organised. Um, and then, yeah, all good at the end. Lads are happy, lads look strong. So, yeah, can't complain. We're in a nice hotel now. We've got this uh, Basilicata something something um, just opposite the hotel, which is lovely. You've seen that out the window. Um, we're in Campania now. We're not too far from Napoli. Don't really know this region well at all. All I know is mozzarella, to be honest. I haven't seen any buffaloes yet. Again, I'm waiting for the day I see a buffalo in Italy, but still not seeing one, despite all this mozzarella that's kicking around. And then, yeah, tomorrow, big day, uh, really big day, just up or down, basically. Um, and then this nasty Strada Bianchi, not even, to be honest, it doesn't even look like a proper white road. It looks like full-on gravel. I think it's a K and a half. Uh, don't quote me, I'm not always so great on these things. We'll have a team meeting tomorrow morning. But uh, yeah, it appeared to be on yeah what looked like they could be ski slopes. So rather interesting. Will be a big stress. Hopefully nothing goes disastrously wrong for anyone. 
because yeah it's a bit silly to lose a Giro for that but um, yeah it is what it is everyone's going to be on red alert um, big fight if it hasn't already exploded by then I'm sure there will be uh, explosions at that moment and yeah we'll just have to do the same job take care of Remco you know we're still sat in second place on GC it's uh, Attila Valtteri riding well I'm sure he'll want to keep the jersey and yeah there's a lot of lads still sniffing around dead close by so still a very open race but yeah, cannot complain. All good for the moment. Still not feeling super sharp, um, which I guess is a little bit of frustration on my part after a really good fit, like the way I was riding in Basque and the Ardennes. Um, don't quite feel on that same level. I guess it's starting to doubts creeping in my mind now about, you know, maybe I've fallen off the cliff, overdone it a little bit. But um, yeah, I'll keep chipping away. Keep sitting up, saving where I can, hoping to come round, hoping not to bury myself even more so yeah that's uh, my current situation at the minute but um by and large the team's doing well so cannot complain um and yeah still looking forward to that rest date still dragging to be honest two more days to go get my feet up get a day in bed and yeah that's today's blog blog audio diary there you go The Cycling Podcast at the 2021 Giro d'Italia is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thanks very much indeed to Science and Sport, our longtime sponsor. If you would like 25% off all your Science and Sport sports nutrition products, go to scienceandsport.com and at the checkout, enter the code SISCP25 SISCP25 There's still time uh, also to enter our science and sport competition every Sunday if you can successfully predict the winner uh, your name well the, the names of the, the people who correctly predict the winner will be one will be chosen at random to win an 80 pound goodie bag of science and sport products there's still time to enter for tomorrow tomorrow's super sunday um, go to thecyclingpodcast.com to find out how to enter. Um, and, well, quite quite a difficult one tomorrow. It's a difficult stage, so hard to pick a winner. Didn't We haven't been running through your top 18 uh, recently, Daniel. I uh, don't probably, think, don't think you did very well probably today. You did best. very well yesterday, though. Um, but, yeah, not so good today. Oh, Però ancora non è arrivato oltre l'Italia l'Espressino, perché cioè, queste, queste mode. Well Daniel, that was this morning. What was going on? Well, Rich. Um, I mean, I know because I was there. Yeah, well, last year... That you, doesn't always mean that I know what's going on, however. <laughs> well, last year, you may remember, when we went to Matera, which is not in Puglia, it's in Basilicata. We got very confused about coffee and the various different types of coffees available. Today, we're in Foggia, the north of Puglia. And we went for a coffee after the start. And again, we were greeted by... Well, we, we saw on the menu board this espressino, which we became... a slightly familiar with somewhat familiar with last year i'd sort of forgotten to I be like honest it. yeah i'd, I'd sort of forgotten all the intricacies of it 
Anyway, what we heard there was the, the barman um, trying to explain to me what the Espressino was. And they were sort of dumbfounded by how dumbfounded I was. Um, we ended up going for I went for an Espressino freddo, a cold Espressino. You went for an Espressino caldo, which they confused me even more on because they then started suggesting that it was the same as a flat white. what other people might call a cafe. Um, Triestino, a, a, a Trieste, Trieste, the totally the opposite end of the country, uh, a Trieste coffee. But I've subsequently learned that in Trieste, that coffee, they call something completely different. They call it a capo in, a capo in B. A capo in B, capo being short for cappuccino, B being short for bicchiere, glass. So it's a cappuccino in a glass. Um, and well, it, w- what you did actually—I I took a photograph of of it, so I'll put, I'll post that tomorrow, and you can uh, you can all see what it looks like. And, and you also heard me there in the bar posing the vital question: Are we allowed to drink these in the afternoon? Can one drink an espressino at any time of day? And you can. Um, however, that sort of well, that became a bit of a hollow victory because I was reading something today from a well-known Italian well, a commentator on everything sort of in modern Italian life, Beppe Severnini, very influential um, journalist and commentator. And we've always said, haven't we, uh, cappuccino's fine up until 11 o'clock. Beppe Severnini says a cappuccino after 10 is immoral and possibly illegal. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Brilliant. Immoral and possibly illegal. So can you imagine the... I can see a new imagine, t-shirt. Yeah. So um, you can imagine the outrage if, you know, Lionel's newsletter is called the 1101. Imagine well, if you did try immoral, 1101. If you want to sign up for the immoral and possibly illegal newsletter from Lionel. Um, but he, you would, uh, by the way, that did, I meant to mention that last night, but do sign up for our, our newsletter um, if you're not already on our mailing list. We don't call it a newsletter. We call it the 1101 Cappuccino. And uh, Lionel wrote um, some lovely words um, yesterday, I think. Was it yesterday? Friday came out. Um, about what we've been doing at the Giro, what he's doing, because of course he's got his own grand tour coming up. He's touring the football grounds of Scotland. A lot of people have been asking about Lionel. Um, it was just too complicated for Lionel to, to come here, unfortunately, with um, especially with the quarantining required going back to the UK. So difficult for Lionel to get here and, and go back, but he is planning his grand tour of the Scottish football grounds in June, and that will form a series for Explore, and then, of course, Lionel is um, definitely coming out for the Tour de France. Rich, talking of the out- outrage of the kind you might see if someone ordered a cappuccino at one minute past 11, Gianni Savio was spitting feathers at the finish line. Gianni Savio has never refused an interview, never refused to speak to me. He didn't refuse to speak to me, but he said, I don't want, to rec- I don't want you to record this. I'm furious. And he, he, he also told me that he's going to demand explanations from his director of sportives and all of his riders tonight because they didn't make the break. And he told me he'd gone round the team bus individually this morning. And I think he sort of thrust his forefinger into each one of his riders' chests and told them exactly what their job was and where they had to be to get in the break today. And it didn't happen. And I said to him, well, are any of them, you know sick or out of form or tired or is are there any kind of excuses whatsoever and he said no and then um, I also tried to lighten the mood by reminding him that he used to to me on numerous occasions he's called himself the Zdenek Zeman 
of cycling. Zdenek Zeman was a kind of iconoclast of a football coach that had most of his success with Foggia, where the stage started today. And I said, Gianni, of all, of all places, I thought a stage starting in Foggia would be the perfect place for the Zdenek Zeman of cycling to, you know, to concoct some sort of masterpiece, tactical I don't masterpiece. Imagine, I don't imagine that helped. What he was most furious about was that one of his star breakaway men, Simon Pillow, was nowhere to be found because he was chatting to you in the mix zone. He Daniel. was, and this continued our sort of pursuit of the, well, what, what are we call it, Rich? The, the sort of, we're trying to find the kind of wind whisperer, the sort of wild man, the kind of natural, the, 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 the Sylvanus um, of modern cycling in the Sven Giro d'Italia. Of, yeah, of, of, um, of the Giro d'Italia. Someone who is perfectly attuned to the seasons, the weather, the climate, the terrain, the culture, the accents, the different cappuccini that you need to order. <laughs> Just someone who is very, you know, whose who's antenna are sort of buzzing um, to, to all external, you know, stimuli. And anyway, um, this, this search has proved, as you can imagine, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's proved difficult. Some would even say fruitless until now. But we happened upon Simon Pello. Why? Because I learned, well, Giovanni Elena, the Androni Giocattoli director sportive, who's going to get a ticking off from Gianni Savage tonight. Speak. He revealed, he's doing a column for an Italian website called Ciclo Web. And a couple of days ago, Simon Pello was in a break and at one stage, um, he he got on his radio and he asked Giovanni Elena to remind him that in the meeting in the morning, it was either Elena or someone else had mentioned the name, the particular name of the wind that was going to blow that day across central Italy. You know, we know this, that certain regional winds have names like the Tramontane in France or the Mistral and the Bora in Italy. And Simon Pellot seemed to remember that Giovanni Elena had given this name, no, given this wind a, a name. Why this was important, Giovanni Elena couldn't understand. Anyway, we tried to get to the bottom of this today with Simon Pello, and he also went on to give, give us a bit of insight into why he might be a good candidate for that sort of, that title, that mantle of the Uomo Selvatico, the wild man, or um, wild, but There should be a jersey cult- for this, cultured. just a map of Italy on it with all the regions and towns and everything picked out. No, we were speaking about this the day the day before, and uh, I mean uh, it's like it's a brezza di, di tierra. Uh, uh, for me, it's kind of a light wind with no stress and so on. And then it was a full stress on the on the stage, and uh, that's why I was asking what's the name of this of this uh, of this wind uh, today. But that shows that you maybe take more interest in kind of context, weather conditions than some riders. I mean, some riders just look at their Garmin and um, it shows that you're sensitive to these things. Yeah, to the, also to the nature. I mean, uh, we are we are a sport on an open and wide, uh, how do you say, uh, atmosphere, I would say. And we are we are always uh, looking at the at the uh, environment and, uh, and the nature and uh, it makes such a huge uh, a difference on the on the race results and the, on the race tactics so yeah for me it's really important to always check and uh, and look around what's going on so you think it's important to be attuned to the natural world in a certain way not many riders are these days 
Yeah, you know, uh, I'm, I really, I'm really enjoying the Giro. I'm really enjoying this country. Also, we are uh, riding through some uh, really beautiful landscape, and uh, even if we are riding full gas, I always have an eyes on the on the nature, on the landscape, and uh, I mean. Uh, I don't want to become like a machine, like to wake up every morning eating my porridge and then racing without even knowing where I am and uh, what uh, what country I am in uh, racing in. And uh, you know, I I had a little bit that bad feeling when I start when I first uh, became a professional with Yam Cycling. I was just in a kind of a routine and losing this all the sense of uh, of uh, yes, I mean uh, of a human being, I will say and. Uh, and uh, more using the cycling as a as a passion as a, as, as a real uh, I would say um, a real job I would say. And I suppose as when you when you spend as much time in the break as you do, you get a better view because you know you can look around you. Yeah, and at that stage of uh, two days ago, it's a it's a good exp- three days ago now is a good exp- uh, example because in the in the bunch it was so stressful, it was so much stress, and then. Uh, in the in the break, it was relaxed, and we could uh, really could enjoy the moment, and uh, even much more than uh, than in in the, in the bunch behind. So, for sure, when you're in the front, uh, you you can uh, open your eyes a little more and uh, uh, and uh, enjoy the moment. I will say. Well, Rich, I, I promise this is going to be the last day when you know I continue to lead us down this um, it's a very self-indulgent rabbit hole, which says more about me than it does about the and, and, and you know the way I would like to see cycling than it does about the Giro d'Italia or anything actually happening in the race. But um, yeah, I did pursue. I continue to pursue it um, with an obvious candidate. With an obvious thought. candidate, the and Super I, Tuscan. The Super Tuscan, Matt Shandri. We know that he has a very romantic um, sort of you know, sepia tone, kind of renaissance style um, well, I mean, as regards of professional the, cycling. The team, what's, ha- what's happened to the ninth man this year? Because famously, of course, two years ago, when Richard Carapaz won the Movistar, Max said that he didn't, he didn't want to describe himself as the ninth man, but, but he was the ninth well, man. They haven't really put up any trees yet, have they? Mark Soler has sort of flattered to deceive, actually spoke to Max a little bit about Soler. He said he's going okay, but you know, people maybe expect a little bit too much of him at this stage. Um, but but on on the issue of, you know, we mentioned yesterday technology and you know teams who are obsessed with technology, riders who are obsessed with technology. Um, Max is someone who, as you can probably imagine, um, it probably pushes back, you know, ag- against that trend and, and, and part of him probably recoils slightly at that. And that was certainly the impression that I had before I spoke to him. And um, yeah, I think he reaffirmed it this morning. Max, this week um, we've had a bit of a theme that we've been talking about a lot and technology and uh, information overload versus well, the cycling that you knew 20 years ago, which was sort of, you know, wake up in the morning, I don't know, look out the window and sort of get a sense of what was going to happen. But also, you know, be sort of in touch with the, the surroundings and the context of the race, I guess, more than guys are now. I mean, do you, do you see that more and more that... I mean, we've been speaking to riders this week and they've said, I don't know which part of Italy I'm in. I couldn't tell you what the region's called. Do you see that more and more? No, for sure. We're just so dialed into the devices and uh, on our own small world. And it's getting, I won't say worse, but it's getting worse. You know, I mean, uh, I got small kids and big kids and the small kids are just like so into technology. And that is a little bit the same for riders, you know. Uh, I mean, I went through, I went through the the year of the of the heart rate monitor, the first heart rate monitors, 
And uh, when you used to get dropped, you used to say, hey, I was 175, you know, and that meant like, oh, my heart was 175, more like lactate and, and I was dropped, you know, so, and now it's just going further and further and further and further. Where are we gonna go? I don't know. I'm the passion side of cycling. I still believe strongly in talking to guys in the room, really getting the best out of them, talking about their fears, their strength side and pulling that out. I still think in this cycling there is that side of, uh, of humanity and the numbers they just have to be an, a, a part of our life in terms of an accessory what we can use but we don't depend on the moment riders depend on them numbers I think they they don't discover the full potential of themselves I mean Max another former Tuscan rider Riccardo Magrini on Eurosport the other day he was talking about in the early 80s the fact that I mean I I hadn't really thought about this. You, you guys didn't even have, well, you were more than 90s, but those guys didn't even have a computer. They didn't even know how many kilometers they'd done. And it was all worked out. If they knew there was a climb after 80 kilometers, he sort of calculated, well, that's about two hours. So in, in two hours, roughly, we'll get to a climb. I mean, it's changed an unbelievable amount, hasn't it? No, it's changed unbelievably. You know, the, a stage like yesterday, the group would have just, you know, tagged on. They would have known what the geographically stage looked like. So they would know they're going you know, south onto the coast. Once you hit the coast, it's like headwind, boom, it's gonna be headwind more or less till we turn into Termoli. But now you're gonna to have to give them, yeah, I have to say that the road work, the road furniture is is incredibly much more than our days. You know, now you've got Central Islands roundabouts, every little town puts their own little type of road furniture. So there is a lot of that, that's true. But, you know, once you just got on the race, you just knew that direction, that was the win, and you just kind of talk to your friends, and then it just kind of build up, build up, build up, till you kind of, you know, got into the final. And then the, the speed was full on, race was full on. Now it's just like a constant number, number theme, you know? So it's just like, I don't know. I don't know where, I don't really know what, what can be done to change or where we're gonna be going. Uh, <laughs> It's just like, you know, before you just sat on and I would sit in the back. I'd love to be in the back and talking about cars and stuff like that. And, and then every now and then put my head up. Oh, oh, that guy's going forward. Oh, that team's moving. OK, OK, see you later. Bye. And kind of move forward. That was it. You know, and it's like. What, what did your routine used to be with the Garibaldi in the evening? Did I, you... didn't, I didn't look at nothing of that shit. I, I mean, I looked at it day by day. I looked at it day by day or opened it and said, this stage I'm going to go full on. And I went for it. And uh, that was it, you know. Um, la, they have an expression for that in Italian, alla Garibaldina, which is kind of, kind of ironic because yeah, yeah, you don't right. look at the Garibaldi. Yeah, it's kind of, yeah, day by day. And, but uh, it's not so much the Garibaldi, but the numbers. The numbers get me. They, they catch me a lot, you know, the type of presentation or, or race, you know, and talking about the roads. And then you get lost and you could talk about 180K stage. You could talk about for an hour of climbs, descents, tunnels, lefts and rights carbos whatever and then what and then but i need to talk about getting my team motivated what is the job what i wanted them to do where i want them to go how i want them to interpretate and that's why we sometimes we don't have it but how can you argue with that rich very persuasive max um but that's his his vision he's got his own um vision hasn't he is his does his team talk still consist of vamos chicos <laughs> that was his team I'm talk sure it's, it i'm sure it's a lot more sophisticated than that and um you know i think i think there are 
some very valid points in what he says about, you know, it's about sort of, well, obviously motivating riders as well, but it's about reading and interpreting and deciphering things that, you know, no gadget or app or or even um, PhD specialists can otherwise sort of decode and decipher. Um, you know, sometimes it's very subtle motivational techniques, it's interpersonal relationships, kind of mirroring someone's, um, you know, the, the sort of nervous system. It's funny that the pink jersey yesterday made a point about having forgotten to load up the the stage onto his his uh, Garmin before the before the the stage and how that obviously did disorientate him a little bit um, and yet it wasn't a stage where there was an awful lot to really worry about in terms of you know climbs or anything or anything like that there was a climb right at the end but it wasn't too difficult to remember that there was a climb at 1.6 kilometers to go um, but riders are so dependent on that in particular now um, but you know it's a it's a it's a crutch that they maybe often don't need as he discovered yesterday um there's definitely a place for it it's funny to think that max was part of for a while the british cycling program where that was very much at the heart of everything that they did an embrace of all kinds of new technology um and sports science and so on and and i don't i don't think we're sort of you know painting a caricature here of max Chandry. i don't think he's quite like that is he no no not at all and i think as i say you know he's his sort of interpersonal techniques and methods are probably, you know, a lot more sophisticated than, you know, a lot of other directors of sportives and a lot more effective because, as I say, they're based on, you know, different different things and different touch points. And I think we're going to hear uh, in at some point in the, in the next week from Matt White on expanding on this this subject. But I mean, he's a great example of someone who who definitely uses the, the technology but combines that with physically going to places and seeing for himself what they're like and having those interpersonal skills as well and that that's the holy grail probably for a ds of of really being across the technology but also being a very good sort of man manager um and and using some of those old school techniques you know looking at maps or um going and wrecking physically wrecking just gazing forces. at the stars just gazing at the stars shall we wrap it up speaking of gazing at the stars we're we're on a sort of a roof terrace here in our hotel aren't we looking out across a pretty lively scene and uh, the the sun is setting but the the sky is a very nice still a very nice bright kind of blue the moon is up there oh you paint a beautiful picture moon. there it's, well, it's, it's a beautiful scene it's a beautiful scene isn't it <laughs> really not very warm though so let's get inside and eat dinner. well we, what we're going to eat tonight oh, molisano cuisine i'm not i'm not too good on that well we'll report back on that tomorrow in the meantime thanks very much daniel thank you